The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. After the news today, my special guest is Jonathan Welch, who is the Vice President of Communications with the Stonewall Democratic Club. So stay tuned. Here are a few news items. President Joe Biden on Thursday imposed significant new vaccine rules on federal workers, large employers, and healthcare staff in a sweeping attempt to contain the latest surge of COVID-19. The new requirements would apply to as many as 100 million Americans, close to two-thirds of the American workforce, and amount to Biden's strongest push yet to require vaccines for much of the country. Good evening, my fellow Americans. I want to talk to you about where we are in the battle against COVID-19, the progress we've made, and the work we have left to do. And it starts with understanding this. Even as the Delta variant 19 has, COVID-19 has been hitting this country hard, we have the tools to combat the virus. If we can come together as a country and use those tools, if we raise our vaccination rate, protect ourselves and others with masking, expanded testing, and identify people who are infected, we can and we will turn the tide on COVID-19. It'll take a lot of hard work It's going to take some time. Many of us are frustrated with the nearly 80 million Americans who are still not vaccinated, even though the vaccine is safe, effective, and free. You might be confused about what is true and what is false about COVID-19. So before I outline the new steps to fight COVID-19 that I'm going to be announcing tonight, let me give you some clear information about where we stand. First, we have made considerable progress in battling COVID-19. When I became president, about 2 million Americans were fully vaccinated. Today, over 175 million Americans have that protection. Before I took office, we hadn't ordered enough vaccine for every American. Just weeks in office, we did. The week before I took office on January 20th of this year, Over 25,000 Americans died that week from COVID-19. Last week, that grim weekly toll was down 70%. And then three months before I took office, our economy was faltering, creating just 50,000 jobs a month. We're now averaging 700,000 new jobs a month in the past three months. This progress is real. But while America is much better shape than it was seven months ago when I took office, I need to tell you a second fact. We're in the tough stretch, and it could last for a while. Highly contagious Delta variant that I began to warn America about back in July spread late summer like it did in other countries before us. While the vaccines provide strong protection for the vaccinated, 
we read about and hear about and we see the stories of hospitalized people, people on their deathbeds, among the unvaccinated over the past few weeks. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And it's caused by the fact that despite America having unprecedented and successful vaccination program, despite the fact that for almost five months, free vaccines have been available in 80,000 different locations, we still have nearly 80 million Americans who have failed to get the shot. And to make matters worse, there are elected officials actively working to undermine the fight against COVID-19. Instead of encouraging people to get vaccinated and mask up, they're ordering mobile morgues for the unvaccinated dying from COVID in their communities. This is totally unacceptable. Third, if you wonder how all this adds up, here's the math. The vast majority of Americans are doing the right thing. Nearly three-quarters of the eligible have gotten at least one shot. But one quarter has not gotten any. That's nearly 80 million Americans not vaccinated. And a country as large as ours, that's 25 percent minority. That 25 percent can cause a lot of damage, and they are. The unvaccinated overcrowd our hospitals, are overrunning emergency rooms and intensive care units leaving no room for someone with a heart attack or pancreatitis or cancer. And fourth, I want to emphasize that the vaccines provide very strong protection from severe illness from COVID-19. I know there's a lot of confusion and misinformation, but the world's leading scientists confirm that if you are fully vaccinated, your risk of severe illness from COVID-19 is very low. In fact, based on available data from the summer, only one out of every 160,000 fully vaccinated Americans was hospitalized for COVID per day. These are the facts. So here's where we stand. The path ahead, even with the Delta variant, is not nearly as bad as last winter. But what makes it incredibly more frustrating is that we have the tools to combat COVID-19 and a distinct minority of Americans, supported by a distinct minority of elected officials, are keeping us from turning the corner. These pandemic politics, as I refer to, are, are, make, are making people sick, causing unvaccinated people to die. We cannot allow these actions to stand in the way of protecting the large majority of Americans who have done their part. I want to get back to life as normal. As your president, I'm announcing tonight a new plan to require more Americans to be vaccinated to combat those blocking public health. My plan also increases testing, protects our economy, and will make our kids safer in schools. It consists of six broad areas of action and many specific measures in each, that, in each of those actions you can read more about in whitehouse.gov. WhiteHouse.gov. The measures, these are going to take time to have full impact. But if we implement them, I believe, and the scientists indicate, that the months ahead, we can reduce the number of unvaccinated Americans, decrease hospitalizations and deaths, 
and allow our children to go to school safely and keep our economy strong by keeping businesses open. First, we must increase vaccinations among the unvaccinated with new vaccination requirements. Of the nearly 80 million eligible Americans who have not gotten vaccinated, many said they were waiting for approval from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Well, last month, the FDA granted that approval. So, the time for waiting is over. This summer, we made progress through the combination of vaccine requirements and incentives, as well as the FDA approval. Four million more people got their first shot in August than they did in July. But we need to do more. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you, the people you work with, the people you care about, the people you love. My job as president is to protect all Americans. So tonight, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. Some of the biggest companies are already requiring this. United Airlines, Disney, Tyson's Food, and even Fox News. The bottom line, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers. We're going to reduce the spread of COVID-19 by increasing the share of the workforce that is vaccinated in businesses all across America. My plan will extend the vaccination requirements that I previously issued in the healthcare field. Already, I've announced we'll be requiring vaccinations at all nursing home workers who treat patients on Medicare and Medicaid because I have that federal authority. Tonight, I'm using that same authority to expand that to cover those who work in hospitals, home health care facilities, or other medical facilities. A total of 17 million health care workers. If you're seeking care at a health facility, you should be able to know that the people treating you are vaccinated. Simple, straightforward, period. Next, I will sign an executive order that will now require all executive branch federal employees to be vaccinated, all. And I've signed another executive order that will require federal contractors to do the same. If you want to work with the federal government and do business with us, get vaccinated. If you want to do business with the federal government, vaccinate your workforce. And tonight, I'm removing one of the last remaining obstacles that make it difficult for you to get vaccinated. The Department of Labor will require employers with 100 or more workers to give those workers paid time off to get vaccinated. No one should lose pay in order to get vaccinated or take a loved one to get vaccinated. Today, in total, the vaccine requirements in my plan will affect about 100 million Americans, two-thirds of all workers. And for other sectors, I issue this appeal to those of you running large entertainment venues, from sports arenas to concert venues to movie theaters, please require folks to get vaccinated 
or show a negative test as a condition of entry. And to the nation's family physicians, pediatricians, GPs, general practitioners, you're the most trusted medical voice to your patients. You may be the one person who can get someone to change their mind about being vaccinated. The tentatively positive public outlook that marked the first months of the Biden administration has faded, according to a new CNN poll conducted by SSRS. The survey released Friday finds a rising share of Americans who say things in the U.S. are going badly and that the economy is in poor shape, with increased worries about coronavirus, the economy, and crime. The new poll finds 69% of Americans say Things in the country today are going badly, below the pandemic era, high of 77% reached in January, just before President Joe Biden took office, but well above the 60% who felt that that way in March CNN poll. Britain's Prince Andrew has been served with an affidavit for a lawsuit, say lawyers for Virginia Robert Jeffrey who alleges she was forced to have sex with the royal when she was 17 years old. A document filled in the U.S. court on Friday showed that the paperwork for Jeffrey's lawsuit was filed at Andrew's home, Royal Lodge, in Windsor on August 27th. The affidavit was accepted by a Metropolitan Police officer at the gates of the property after the agent filling the document had been turned away the previous day, according to the documents. A new poll released Thursday and Friday showed Governor Newsom easily surviving tomorrow's recall election thanks to a newly motivated Democratic base. The first poll from Survey USA and the San Diego Union Tribune shows that 54% of likely voters plan to vote no on question one, while 41% plan to vote yes, which continues Newsom's momentum in Survey USA polls. A shock July poll from the firm showed yes, winning by double digits, but an end of August Survey USA poll showed that momentum had flipped in Newsom's favor with no beating yes by eight percentage points. A second poll released Friday morning by the Berkeley Institute of Government Studies and Los Angeles Times shows Newsom opening up an even bigger lead on question one. The poll found that a whopping 61% of likely voters plan to vote no, compared to just 39% who plan to vote yes, making it the first poll that has shown Newsom beating back the recall by more than 20 percentage points. An estimated 340,000 Californians could get an extra week of unemployment benefits for the week that ends Saturday. Most federal unemployment aid programs created during COVID-19 pandemic ended last week. An estimated 2.2 million Californians were to see those benefits cut off. But there's an exception. The state's Employment Development Department is using the federal state extended duration benefits program, which ends Saturday to provide whatever amount a claimant was getting from their regular unemployment payment or federal extension benefit. The maximum weekly benefit is now 450. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. 
It's been a while since I've done a Let's Get Blunt segment because I only do those when I'm passionate about uh, a current event or something that really needs to be told uh, in a more blunt, uh, hold nothing back kind of way. But today I do have a topic I want to talk about, and it's about uh, President Joe Biden's performance, especially in the last uh, month or so. Now, as some of you may know, I'm a Democrat. I voted for President Biden. However, I think my credibility as a journalist uh, and as a person, period, depends on my ability to criticize or critique everyone, regardless, uh, everyone, including people and organizations and parties that are, quote unquote, my type, whether that would be Democrats, progressives, as I am um, as a gay man, my ability to criticize the LGBTQ uh, organizations um, and such when, uh, when needed as an Armenian American to be able to criticize um, organizations and leaders in the Armenian American community and in Armenia, uh, all of which I have done before and I will continue to do so. So this is for uh, President Biden. I think the first sort of eyebrow raise that I had was when I read that uh, President Biden claimed to have created 3 million jobs since he took office. Well, most of you know that that's very vague, created 3 million jobs. You know, what does that mean? What type of jobs were they? And were they really created? And are they new jobs? Most of those jobs, you know, let's get blunt, were jobs that were temporarily halted or positions that were uh, sort of eliminated for a while because of the pandemic and are sort of coming back or were coming back uh, or companies that uh, laid off workers and were not hiring because of the pandemic. And of course, there was a period soon after President Biden took over, I would say sometime after February, March, even April, things seemed positive. So companies started to rehire and bring back their employees and such. So that's really not creating 3 million jobs. It's, you know, it's very, very deceptive. And on top of that, I mean, let's get real. A lot of these jobs are, you know, low level jobs and they don't even pay living wages. Uh, I'm not going to go into uh, the fact that we need at least $15 uh, for federal minimum wage and a lot more than that in other states, especially California. But the bottom line is, you know, it's just so easy to say three million jobs and leave it at that and pat yourself on the back and move on. So, you know, I don't buy that. You know, also, President Biden uh, glossed over the reality that the U.S. economy uh, remains almost 6.8 million jobs under it's pre-pandemic peak. So we've got to put it in context and sort of show all sides of that. He took office when a lot of companies had uh, temporarily laid off workers and were about to rehire once things got better. And he was lucky to have sort of gotten into office when things were about to go into an upswing. Of course, 
I do give him credit for really aggressively uh, tackling COVID-19 and uh, showing a good positive trajectory at the time. But all of those details have to be mentioned, so it's not, uh, it's not uh, so uh, vague. It's just the whole thing is just not um, what it really is. Now, the U.S. minimum wage is less than half the living wage for a single adult, which needs $15.41 an hour or roughly $32,000 a year before tax. And this is according to a national data compiled by MIT. It's a third of what a family of four needs to live, which is around $21.50 per hour per parent or almost 90,000 a year combined. And that affects are compounded for single parents. So are we really paying people that? You know, let's just, uh, let's get real. Uh, in fact, a single person, okay, a single unmarried person with minimum wage cannot afford an apartment in any state. So if someone is making minimum wage, they cannot rent an apartment today if they're not already in an apartment that's, you know, had uh, rent control for years. And they can't get an apartment. And that's why we're seeing so many people um, living in one apartment now or one house. Um, you know, I, I know people personally who are sort of jammed, you know, packed in like a two-bedroom apartment. There are like five or six people living in it because that's what they can afford. Now, unemployment insurance, which was created by the CARES Act, is already expired, and President Biden didn't do much for that. Uh, that means an estimated 7.5 million Americans have lost their unemployment benefits. Um, that happened last week. Just overnight, 7.5 million Americans lost their lifeline. Now, let's just take Southern California, where a lot of people are, are working for the, for the entertainment industry. And a lot of them are gig workers, and a lot of them are working in areas where it's still very wobbly. It's still very slow such as like film premieres or catering or screenings and such. And these people, you know, no one can claim or say, well, you know, things are better now, go get a job. Well, no, it's not. A lot of what used to be film premieres and award seasons and screenings and, and all of that has gone online, which means that a lot less jobs for each of those uh, projects. So that's just one example of uh, the irresponsibility of uh, allowing 7.5 million Americans to be cut off from unemployment. The rent moratorium has expired nationwide. So at the end of, depending on what state you live in, pretty soon in California, it's end of September, um, millions of people are going to be at risk of eviction. Another win for large corporations that own buildings because they can evict people who've been there for a long time, especially those that uh, have rent control, and then rent out those apartments for a lot more. So this is sort of 
it's just a really bad formula and a bad, bad planning of what's to come, which is very it's in contrast to what President Biden has campaigned for and has told us that he's for the working class, for the middle class and all of that, because all of this is really affecting the middle class. In fact, I saw a meme the other day that was a picture of a homeless person sleeping on a, a, a park bench with uh, newspapers covering him so he wouldn't be cold. And the newspapers had headlines about how great the stock market was doing and this and that. And the caption said, let's not uh, judge the health of the economy, but how it's uh, performing for the 1%. And isn't that the truth? Because so many of the headlines about the economy really apply to the 1% or 5% uh, at most. Those that have you know, stocks and properties and investments and such. The truth of the matter is that about 50% of Americans are three paychecks away from being homeless. So President Biden, <laughs> this is contrary to what you promised. This is contrary to what you campaigned on. And, um, you know, hopefully you will have you have something planned. Uh, I do know that it's not as simple as uh, you have to go through in terms of uh, unemployment, for example, that has to go through uh, Congress. But something has to be done. It has to be pushed um, because this is not this is not good for what's to come. So, you know, as many as 11 million people are behind on rent right now. This is according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the left uh, leaning think tank estimates that about 16% of U.S. households are behind on rent, double the delinquency rate before the pandemic. But in some states, more than a quarter of renters are behind on payments. So what is going to happen when people are start getting evicted, some of them having also lost their unemployment? It's, it's just really a disaster waiting to happen. You know, the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, instituted the eviction ban in September of 2020, and it's been extended several times. Now, the Biden administration last week uh, allowed the restrictions to expire. Um, so the, how, the, the House law, uh, lawmakers on Friday, uh, or last Friday, actually, they were to uh, pass a bill extending the moratorium. But um, that's not happened. They failed to do it, and it's not happened. So that was on, that was on the House to try to uh, stop the evictions for the working class, for the middle class, and people who are on the brink of being homeless. So, you know, let's get blunt about it. Let's get real. And as much as... You know, I think, <laughs> of course, uh, President Biden is, uh, you know, s doing so much better than Trump. I mean, it's not even comparable. I think that I have to be able to criticize someone that I voted for, because right now, the way I see it is the working class and the middle class, which is the majority of Americans, are being neglected. 
uh, for other policies and other agenda items that President Biden has. And I hope that changes. So let's get blunt and keep talking about it. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Jonathan Welch is the vice president of communications for the Stonewall Democratic Club. A native of Massachusetts, has been involved in Democratic politics since he was a teenager, getting his degree in political science from University of Massachusetts, and has worked in political communications both on volunteer and professional levels for 15 years. The Stonewall Democratic Club is the nation's oldest LGBTQ plus and feminist political group. Since its founding in Los Angeles in 1975, Stonewall has been the home for progressive LGBTQ plus Democrats, as well as straight allies. Good morning, Jonathan. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? Good morning, Vic. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have uh, to be speaking with you and to anytime I have anyone from the Stonewall Democratic Club, it's a it's a retreat to get your perspective on what's happening in our world, in our politics, in our social justice, um, and such. You know, I, I know I, I read a little bit of your bio and such, but for those that are not as familiar with the Stonewall Democratic Club, if you can briefly tell us um, what the organi- organization does and also um, your role in the organization. Of course. So uh, Stonewall is the oldest uh, feminist LGBTQ progressive political organization in the country. Uh, we are we are obviously named after the Stonewall riots. So we tip our hat to uh, to the queer brothers and sisters who came before us, who fought for us to have uh, more of a place in the world. So our whole platform is to uh, to lift up queer voices in politics, whether it be people who are running for office, people who are looking to be appointed to office, people who are trying to get involved in the political process, or simply people who want to learn more about voting and want to get involved on that level. Uh, So we welcome participation from all angles for LGBTQ plus people in the political process and clearly uh, to get them amped up and and voting for and supporting Democrats. We want to see more Democrats elected uh, to office, not just locally, but nationwide. Our focus is, of course, in Southern California. We're headquartered in L.A., um, but we, we do focus on the communities all around Los Angeles County. And we take a look at things that are going on nationwide and see where we can have an impact. So our scope is not just limited to... Uh, where we are here, we always look at races that are going on throughout the country and see uh, where we can endorse, where we can make calls, where we can write postcards, what kind of impact we can have on um, on those elections and to try to get people who are going to advance the rights, advance the interests of the LGBTQ plus community um, once they are elected. Well, that was a great description. Um, You really made it real um, for people. And uh, I just want to add, because I know that there are people who are heterosexual and cisgender on, mm-hmm. uh, who are members of the Stonewall. So uh, people who are Absolutely. heterosexual and cisgender, they are also welcome to be a mm-hmm. part of uh, Stonewall. 
Yes, all are welcome. I, um, you know, allyship is very important. It's very important to, to our rights. It's very important to our causes. As we take a look out at what's going on across the country and across the world, um, you know, we may not fit the, as individuals, we may not necessarily uh, fit the mold of, uh, of groups that are targeted or people who, whose rights are under attack, but it doesn't mean that we can't fight for those people as well. And it's incredibly important that we stand up, all stand up for each other, because if one of us loses rights, everyone, uh, everyone's rights are on the line. So Absolutely. that is important to us. And we do welcome um, people of all walks of life into the Stonewall Democratic Club and into the organization. Um, and you also asked about my role, and I neglected to say that. And usually, I like to talk about myself, so that's uh, interesting. <laughs> I forgot, but uh, I'm the vice president of communications. So I was just elected uh, in July, and I oversee the communications, the voice of the organization, our social media, our outreach to the media. Uh, so I know we've worked with you before, Vic, and look forward to continuing to work with you. Um, so yeah, so that is what what I do. I help to manage that voice for the club. Well, that's a huge responsibility, and uh, yes, I'm grateful to have you on the show so we can dive into the topics. Let me before yes. I go into anything specific, I want to ask you what your sort of perception is um, in terms of where we are politically because it's we're kind of in this weird place, I think. Because for a while, President Biden was, uh, you know, very popular. There was a lot of, you know, his approval ratings were very high, the way he handled uh, COVID-19. But then the, with Afghanistan and Delta variant and uh, a lot of other things, some of which are not in his control, um, mm -hmm. we've come sort of into this strange place. So I want to see what your perception is and what you think about where we are today politically. Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, you know, when I talk about politics to people, I look at it a few different ways. One being that once you're part of the political process and you're interested and you're involved and engaged, you never really fall out of it. So that being said, it's either very exciting to get involved when you find candidates that you like and support or you're fighting against a candidate that you really dislike and you fear what would happen if they were elected um and the excitement that comes with that there's a difference between that and then the every day of the political process so obviously when we win then the governing starts and then at that point uh whoever's in office gets on the defense versus being proactive and uh and talking about what they want to do it instead becomes about what they are doing day to day and oftentimes playing a game of whack-a-mole and trying to to solve all of the problems of the world so with joe biden of course you know i i've been a big supporter he was not necessarily my choice in the primaries but all that aside, I still always had a, a great affection for him. And when he took office, I really kind of felt like this is going to be very difficult and challenging. And honestly, him riding high for the first, where are we now? It's September. So the first really eight months of his administration 
um that was a really good clip because he thought he was taking charge he was taking care of things that had been neglected for so long under the previous administration um it's inevitable as you're following the arc of someone in office that they are going to on occasion disappoint you um on occasion they will make mistakes they are human the people who make up the administration are human beings so to see how things have started to change um, is not surprising because the world turns and we can't avoid all of the things that are going on, you know, across the globe uh, with COVID, with Afghanistan, with the economy here at home, with jobs, with uh, the all of the various laws that are being passed throughout the country. I still personally completely support the president and i think uh but i think what is the difference between us and the other side the people that we fight against uh in in our government here is that it's not a blind following we can criticize joe biden we can look at the things that are not going right and we can say, you know, here is where there's room for improvement. And there's certainly some room for improvement in in various um, sectors across the board. So I, I think it's just about we support him. I support him. And I'm speaking for myself. I'm not necessarily speaking for the organization, I should, I should say. Um, but I'm speaking for myself when I say, you know, that I support the president, but I definitely see some areas where I would like to see him improve, where I would like to see him push a little bit harder, where I would like to see him fight a little bit tougher. Um, and there's no reason why we as citizens and engaged people in the process can't push him and the administration to do those things and to fight a little bit harder. Right. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Jonathan Welch, Vice President of Communications for the Stonewall Democratic Club. Well, how about, I think we should talk about what happened in Texas, but also sort of in the context of voting rights mm -hmm. and also this aggressive campaign by Republicans to make voting difficult and also to pass these um, just horrendous laws. I mean, we've gone backwards. Um, yeah. I want to hear from you about that. Um, how much of a shock was it in terms of what happened in Texas? I mean, God, Rick, it, it sucks, point blank. It, it is just disheartening to see what's going on there. Um, what's been on my radar since day one is it's two pronged it's it's the voting rights and then it's it's reproductive rights um if they're coming for the reproductive rights of women if they're coming for um for roe v wade which they already have and has essentially been overturned by a court that has decided to stick its head in the sand as sonia sotomayor said and do nothing and and just make a make a decision on its shadow docket and not really address this with arguments or anything at all to see that happen is 
not surprising looking at this court, but it's also disheartening and makes makes me sick to my stomach to see it. And then attacking the sacred right to vote, that is the cornerstone of our entire democracy. America relies on the independence of its voters to go out and cast their votes and the people who count those votes to be impartial and to do their jobs and to do it without any kind of partisan bent and to uphold the will of the people. We live in a country right now where the majority of people are on the left, but we're concentrated in areas away from these red states to the point where those red states that have a little bit of a conservative majority, some of them that have a very safe conservative majority, you notice, are probably not taking up these laws. But the states that are a little bit more purplish, leaning towards red and could change, are going after the fundamental right to vote. In Texas, the governor just last week signed a law basically saying that uh, vote, that it was okay to make voting harder, to encourage partisan poll watchers to go out and bully voters all throughout the state. You know, you look at the blue areas of Texas and they are brilliantly blue. You have all of your cities, Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, El Paso. These are all places that have a very strong democratic presence. By doing what the governor did, he's empowering people to travel all across that state and basically harangue voters away from voting. And, you know, we saw it in the 2020 campaign when the Biden-Harris campaign truck, uh, campaign bus was almost driven off the road by a caravan of Trump supporters. Right. That kind of behavior is now encouraged. Is the Stonewall so, Democratic Club involved or do you have it on your platform, especially mm -hmm. going towards, you know, as we go into 2022 to advocate for voting rights and really combat what's happening now? Yes, we do. So this is obviously, you know, this is not business as usual anymore. We can't just rely on um, on organizing and being activists, you know, for going out and voting the way that we've been voting for decades. It's just not the reality anymore. So we are watching closely what's going on across the country. Of course, you know, as we're concentrating in California, we're watching what's happening here with the recall and making sure that we don't get a governor who's like Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis and, and the others who wants to take away the rights to vote. Um, so we're protecting what's going on here in our own backyard. But we're also watching closely and seeing for opportunities where we can jump on board and try to help that. Um, you know, unfortunately, these laws have been passed. They've been passed in Georgia. They've been passed uh, now in Texas. And I know that there are several legal efforts that have entered the system uh, recently, almost immediately after these bills have been signed, specifically in Texas. Um, I know that the ACLU is suing. I know that Mark Elias and his group, Democracy Docket, are suing. So any opportunities that we have as the Stonewall Democratic Club to join those efforts or to support those efforts or to uh, stop those 
those efforts from or to stop not those efforts i'm sorry but to stop the um the voter suppression efforts on the other side from even entering state legislatures any opportunity we have to get involved in that way we will get involved right now our bandwidth is focused on california just at the moment i mean we do have an eye on texas we have an eye on these other states but right here in our own backyard we're seeing an uh, an attempt at taking over government and turning California red, um, despite the will of the people, the overwhelming will of the people, 60 plus percent of whom elected our well, governor, that, that Gavin Newsom. Because Republicans know that they can't, or it's virtually impossible to get elected in the state of California. So of they course. have to do recalls, which yeah. is a tricky way to really push yourself into public office. Um, they play dirty, you know. I'm I'm sorry that they play they play dirty. They play dirty because they know that they can somehow get away with it, and that's not what we're interested in doing. You know, unfortunately, we try to do it. Not unfortunately, but we we are trying to do everything above board, and they go into these you know very dark, dirty tactics to try to take over power wherever they can, and it's not just. With Governor Newsom, and I know you want to talk about the recall, so I'll, get, I'll let you ask your question. Not, I'm yeah, sorry right. to interrupt. It's not just Governor yeah. Newsom. They're trying to, although I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but we still have to be careful. They're trying to go after uh, District Attorney George Gascon, who I think has done a, a really great job since he was elected. Yeah. They are. They're not. And it's not just there, too, Vic. You know, I mean, they they are, yes, actively going after George Gascon. I'm seeing signs as I drive around L.A. to recall uh, city council member Mike Bonin, yeah. to recall city council member Nithya Raman, to recall people that they just don't like. And they don't like any of us. They don't like any of the elected Democrats in office. So they're going to go for every elected Democrat. So if the recall does pass, and that's a green light for them to go after every elected official with a D after their name in this state. And right. don't think that they won't, because that is exactly what they're going to do. That's their playbook. I want to come back and talk about this more, but I also want to ask you, because this affects the state of California and, and for sure Southern California a lot, the fact that the unemployment insurance expired for about 7.5 million Americans. And with one out of eight Americans living in California, that's significant for us, as well as on top of that, the eviction moratorium uh, mm -hmm. expires at the end of uh, September, which is going to affect, again, a lot of people in, in throughout Southern California. And the queer community are also very much affected by that <clears throat> what what's your take on that is there any hope uh, is anything happening that we're not aware of well you know i unfortunately i'm not in the back rooms in sacramento <laughs> to be able to to comment on that or even like wield a little bit of influence in that realm however what i will say is that we have more power in california to extend uh some of these protections and to beef up the protections that we have um for people who find themselves without work and this goes beyond COVID. i mean this is something that for years to come i think we need to shore up our our social safety net here in the state to protect um protect those who are unemployed protect those who 
who face eviction, who face homelessness, and for those who are already experiencing homelessness to try to protect uh, our, our unhoused neighbors and try to you know, give them the services that they need in order to, uh, to obtain shelter and to obtain health care. I mean, it, it really is all on the line. So what we can do is certainly, you know, contact our representatives, contact the governor, and first of all, defeat the recall in order to make sure that all of those protections can be expanded. So I think there is hope here on the state level. On the federal level, I know that, you know, it seems as though everybody uh, in Washington is looking for an opportunity to and these protections so that we can get back to normal. And the reality is we're just not normal. I mean, as variants continue, we have, not only do we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated, but we have cases where uh, COVID is breaking through to people who have been vaccinated and obviously not nearly as severe um, or in a high number as those who are unvaccinated. But while we're still contending with this virus, it's still going on, it's still mutating, it's still uh, it's still happening. We're still yeah, right in the middle of the pandemic. August saw the worst jobs report in six months. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> there's this myth that the economy is robust and all of that, and that's just not true. It might be for the 1%, because uh, yeah. the stock market's doing very well, but it doesn't help everyday Americans. And uh, we're definitely not, I mean, we were on our way to recovery before the Delta variant, but uh, things have changed now. And you're right, California, we're we're kind of lucky to live in California where we have more protections and uh, California has certain jurisdictions to uh, extend or beef up certain programs. But uh, federally, it just seems... uh, like um, a really tough fight for, especially for Democrats. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Jonathan Welch, Vice President of Communications for the Stonewall Democratic Club. I wanna ask you before we go, in terms of local elected officials, Mm-hmm. Who should we look out for in terms of people that may or may not be recalled? Uh, what are some races and some sort of challenges that are happening now and are going to be as we go into 2022? I think a, a good place to start is that once we get past the gubernatorial recall, it's time to talk to our legislators about the process of recalling. Because as we saw with the governor, it's an absurdly low number of voters needed to cross that threshold in order to trigger the recall election. It wastes millions of dollars. It wastes energy. It wastes our time. And that's the point, right? I don't think that they're going to stop there if they're allowed to continue this process. It's an unfair and semi-undemocratic process because you know, we've talked about this before. I'm sure you've talked about this on your show with other guests too. Uh, but it's not news that if the recall of the governor passes uh, with, you know, let's say Gavin Newsom gets 49% of voters to support him, um, 
and say that they don't want the recall. Well, 51% said that they do. And chances are the turnout's going to be extremely low. We're looking right now at um, registration voter, I'm sorry, voter returns for vote by mail in the 20%, 20 to 25% range. Hopefully that increases um, as the days go on, but we are seeing lower voter turnout. So let's say that pa that measure passes. You could have someone like Larry Elder, who's completely unhinged and and does not reflect the direction that California wants to go in, be governor with 20 to 25 percent of people supporting him simply because there are 46 people on that ballot. So it's undemocratic at its root. And as I mentioned before, I don't think they're going to stop specifically when it comes to the more urban areas, the more progressive areas of the state, where we have to take a look at what's going on here in L.A., but we also have to keep an eye on uh, on the elected officials up in San Francisco and in other cities throughout the country or throughout the state yes. where they're going to look for that and they're going to look for opportunities to have a beef with any elected official and try to recall them. So unfortunately, it's across the board, but I think that where we can nail that down and where we can kind of stop it in its, in its tracks is to talk to our legislators on the state level about making changes to that ability to recall. Yeah, that's a good point. And hopefully in a blue sky situation, also get rid of the Electoral College, because I think that's a very outdated right. from where we are. Talk about yes. non-democratic. It worked when it was created, but it's no longer relevant, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. Jonathan, before we will we go is there anything that you'd like to add or even a call to action perhaps oh god where do i begin vic okay. <laughs> you know, there's so much to do um if you want to get involved with stonewall as we mentioned at the top of the broadcast we or at the top of the interview we have um so many opportunities and we welcome everybody so really check us out at stonewalldems.org stonewall dems at stonewall dems on social media uh, or Stonewall Dems LA for more locally focused content. Um, really, this is going to take everybody. And oh, my dog has something to say too. Um, really, this is going to take everybody being involved. And if you can reach out to everyone you know in your network right now, because we're facing this recall tomorrow. <laughs> so, you know, it's happening. Please reach out, make sure everyone's voted. You can go to any vote center across L.A. County um, if you have not voted yet. If you have not received your mail ballot, you can go to a vote center and cast your ballot there. So please just reach out to everyone you know because we have hours to go before, uh, before this happens, and we are hoping that we can defeat this measure. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for all the wisdom and info um, you shared with us. Um, I hope to uh, chat with you again soon, and uh, let's see what happens tomorrow. Thanks for having me, Vic. Thanks, Jonathan. That was my interview with Jonathan Welch, who is the Vice President of Communications for the Stonewall Democratic Club, the nation's leading LGBTQ plus political advocacy organization, to which I am a member proudly. Uh, Jonathan, thank you very much for being on the show, and uh, I hope to chat with you again soon.
Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.